I'm Esther Alma. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spend, we continue the Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent. We talk the personal, the societal, the cultural, and the educational. We ask, what did we learn about consent? What do we need to unlearn? How do we create a consent-positive environment in our educational institutions. In November, the Consent Convo is brought to you by The Spin and Emotional Justice in partnership with Essence. Check out Essence every Thursday and they'll post each show plus a piece on the Convo contributors. Consent, sharing, unlearning, reframing, reimagining, all of that coming up. contributors this week are two educators, Dr. Nadia Lopez and Frenchie Davis. Dr. Nadia Lopez is the founding principal of Mott Hall Bridges Academy, a Brooklyn, New York-based middle school. Dr. Lopez pioneers a leadership path showing underprivileged communities and creating positive institutions that have global impact. Due to Dr. Lopez's work in education, she has appeared on The Ellen Show, visited President Obama, and received the Medal of Distinction from Barnard College. In 2015, a Honey fundraiser raised $1.4 million to provide Nadia students with college trips and scholarships. Dr. Lopez is also a Black Girls Rock change agent, a TED Fellow, and author of The Bridge to Brilliance, an inspirational account of the creation of a path-breaking inner-city middle school in Brooklyn, New York. Frenchie Davis is an educator on human sexuality with a focus on the African-American community. Frenchie combines her expertise of social services, education, and pop culture to entertain, educate, and enhance the emotional and sexiological intelligence of her audiences. Frenchie collaborates with several organizations from DC Public Schools, Metro Teen AIDS, the National Council for Black Studies, the College of Black Studies at the College of Charleston, and in 2015 was a research scholar at the Cuba Delegation for Race, Culture, Gender, and Sexuality. Frenchie is host of the radio show Libido Talk on New York's WBAI. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hi. Thank you for having us. Hello. Let's start with your personal journeys on consent. How did you learn about consent? Who taught you? How did what they taught you shape your relationship to your body, to sex, to power, to men, to women? Did the actual word ever come up for you? And if so, in what context? How did family and especially culture influence that teaching for you? And how did society shape your ideas of what it meant to be a woman and notions of consent? What kind of sex education was there at school, if any? And how did religion shape your learning about consent and sex? So let's talk consent and your personal journeys in understanding what it was. 
Frenchie Davis, let me start with you. Your thoughts. One, I have to say that and acknowledge that I am a victor. I am a survivor of sexual assault from a young girl and growing up through my teenage and adolescent years. But I also believe that consent for me and, and understanding it was very fractional in my life. And from my childhood through my teenage years, through my early adulthood, and now as what I call grown-grown, consent is very, very different for me. So I consider consent in my journey very fractional. And I imagine that as people evolve and learn to understand themselves, that it may be very fractional for them as well. Break down what you mean by fractional. Exactly what was it for you in your childhood? How did it change? And what did it change into in your teens? As a child, and I think that many children are this way, that I don't think that consent usually exists for children. We say things like, eat your vegetables, clean your plate. We don't get to say as children sometimes, yes or no, or kiss this relative, go give them a hug, even though we may not want to as children. And I think now today we are learning that, you know, if a child doesn't want to hug or give a kiss to and so-and-so or Uncle Bob, that we don't pressure them to do so. Whereas when we see our children start to develop and we start pointing out their development, oh, look look at her, you know, she's finally, her breasts are finally coming in around the family members. To me, I think it's, it's kind of traumatizing to start discussing my body around the family And that's the first place where I think that young people learn that they don't have the right to say no and they lose their sexual agency very early. And so when I work with parents today, I remind them that they are entitled to their sexual privacy even as children and that we need to be mindful of some of the things that we do maybe out of tradition or out of mockery. I want to really hold the space. So our first conversation is all about our personal journeys to consent. And then the second half will be about your work. But the first one is really about, I want to really hear about you, because this is where you connect with millions of people who then think about their personal journey. So I want to hold the space and really have you talk about your personal journey to begin with. It was very diverse. My father was a womanizer. And my mother was a very conservative woman. And I was a crossbreed of these parental experiences. And I learned repression through my mother. And I learned sexual adventure through my father. And I knew it was something unique and different about it when I double dated with my father. And I had probably certain freedoms of expression that I think that was very unique. I was very keen on that in my early teenage years. And because of that, ironically enough, I ended up being more restrictive. I did not give consent around my body until I was in college. I had never even dated a guy whose parents were divorced, probably until I was 25. So I had this image of what men were going to be like to me because of my experiences with my father, because of watching him with other women. And there was a lot of sexism, a lot of womanizing. And I knew that that was not going to be the path that I walked, even though... 
I watched it as it was normalized for me to see. And because it was normalized, I think it was interesting as a survivor that in a lot of ways I was able to move past those experiences because it was kind of normalized. And it wasn't until I was in my graduate studies for human sexuality and I interviewed a pedophile that I came to my own fruition about my experience and how unnormal it was. And then from that point on, consent again, speaking fractionally, became something very new for me. Do you remember what age you first learned about it when you say it was fractional and then at what point it changed in terms of your adolescent years? I was sexually abused very early on. I was probably five in the first instance. The following instance, I was around 12 or 13. The other instances to follow, unfortunately, were in my teenage years by the person that my mother was married to at that time. Ironically, he would do things like kiss me over my mouth and I would resist. And he would say, see, I'm teaching you, you know, if a boy does this to you, you don't let him do that. And again, because I had normalized womanizing, I did not understand the barriers that he was crossing at that time. I knew it didn't feel comfortable, but I did not understand the barriers because womanizing was a normalcy in my experiences watching my biological father and being a child. So I had normalized these type of unfortunate experiences. And then in my adulthood, learning more about my sexual agency, learning more about who I was as a sexual being, I could reconfigure consent in a way that continues to allow me to heal. So there was a lot of decolonizing for me sexually to continue to allow me to heal. And also, luckily, I've been surrounded by healthy men who nurtured that healing process for me. Dr. Nadia Lopez, you Just like Frenchie, I had experienced sexual abuse by a family member, but one of the things when listening to Frenchie that came up for me is how we're taught consent. So my mom made it very clear about what, consent was and how you should protect yourself, protect your body. But when she shared this with me, and even my my father shared this with me, they would always talk about be wary of other people that are not part of your family. So the adults that you may come in contact with, whether it's at school, whether it's in the neighborhood, but they really didn't take time to really discuss, be mindful of family members and even family members who are children themselves and don't know what that may mean in terms of seeking consent from a child who doesn't even understand what they're being asked to do. And so that probably happened like when I was nine years old, nine, eight or nine years old. By the time I became an adolescent, going through my teenage years, um, even going into my 20s, I grappled with this idea of love and consent. So it was tied around a lot of the self-esteem and self-worth 
and what that meant in terms of giving someone else that consent. So I didn't find myself wanting to be in relationships because I had a fear that someone would violate or take that consent from me, especially as I was grappling with my dad being separated from my mom and just having to go through a whole host of things mentally. And so I ended up in a relationship with someone, getting married to that person and realizing that I had given consent to someone who didn't even value the consent that they had been given, um, access to me as an individual full mind and body. And so it really didn't click until I had my own daughter about what that would mean in terms of teaching her the true meaning of consent, teaching her whether it's how someone engages with you physically, how someone engages with you mentally, how someone engages with you spiritually, how your self-worth is determined on what you're willing to accept from others and how you have to be strong in your convictions, even as a child, just knowing what's right and what's wrong and understanding that every adult and every child, even if they're their family members or not, do not have the right to violate you in any way, shape, or form. And so by my experience, I had to have early conversations with my daughter probably from the time that she was three in a way that she would understand four, five, six, and even now that she's 15, always checking in with her, being very conscious of who she surrounds herself with. And then, you know, being mindful of what are the images that she's seeing online or on television because I think a lot of our children are what they're exposed also influences what they believe to be consent and how, you know, even in this unfortunate situation with the presidential election where things may be said and where people say that that's a certain type of locker room talk, where our kids start to become programmed that if someone in any way, shape, or form violates you in a way that it wasn't consensual for you to speak to me that way, it wasn't consensual for you to touch me that way, that that's not okay that we can't just chalk it up to this is boys will be boys or girls will be girls. That's not correct. People have a right to their personal space and how they should be treated in this world. One of the things that's really powerful about this is the idea of being robbed of saying no. And so because so much of the way we think about consent is kind of a no means no framing, It makes me wonder about two things for you both. How have you had to unlearn your body being a site where permission was taken away? And that part of what we've been talking about in the consent convo is creating what I call a consent positive environment. And so a space where we actually see power in permission and see power and pleasure in permission as opposed to the opposite. And that we think of consent in a very no means no space. I wonder for you both being survivors, how was your yes shaped by your experience and what informs when you say yes as a result of what you've both survived? Starting with you, Frenchie. Because I take such pleasure in saying yes, it's a happy word. So because yes is pleasure for me in any instance, whether I'm doing something for a friend and I say yes, I take pleasure in it. So I've learned for myself to never do anything that I don't take pleasure in because then I am fulfilled and rewarded in every circumstance. 
simply if I don't want to do it. If someone says, will you do something for me and I really don't want to do it, because I remember not having the ability to say no or yes and have that option, I wholeheartedly say no because I know I won't enjoy it. So for me, in giving, in loving, in doing favors, in in working, in my job, in any instance, if it is not pleasurable, I don't say yes. And you, Nadia? It goes along those lines that it's about are the decisions when I'm saying yes in honor of who I am? Is it compromising my beliefs? Is it putting me in harm's way? When I wake up tomorrow, will I be okay with the decision that I made? And that's sometimes hard for a lot of people to admit to because oftentimes the reason why we say the yes is because we don't want others to judge us or think less of us. So we give a lot of consent, even child to parent. We give consent to our parents, even though it's some things that we don't want to do, we do it, right? And then we get into relationships, whether it's personal or business, and we give consent because we don't want this person to think less of us. But at the end of the day, the question becomes, would we be okay doing the same thing to that person? And how do we create those boundaries that says to every individual that, If this is not okay for me, then I'm not going to be in agreement with it. And it has nothing to do with you, but it really has to do with me being able to own this decision and understanding what consequences come with it after. Self-care has to be a priority. What have you had to unlearn in order to create healthier, more loving engagements between yourself and your body and whoever you choose to bring in contact with your body? What have you had to unlearn? Starting with you, Frenchie. Just about everything, quite honestly. (laughs) And that's why I say, you know, decolonizing my mind, decolonizing. I've had to unlearn, you know, how many sexual partners I should have. I've had to unlearn what is appropriate dress or inappropriate dress. I've had to unlearn my so-called place as a woman. I've had to unlearn that, you know, you're nobody until somebody loves you. I've had to unlearn that women are inferior or that girls are inferior. I've had to unlearn the power that we give men. I've had to unlearn all of those things, and that's just some of them. I've had to unlearn, like, if somebody wants you to smile because, oh, you know, you should just smile, even if I don't feel like smiling, or I've had to unlearn that women are emotional creatures. No, like everybody has feelings. Or that if I want to get rid of a guy that's approaching me, then I should just tell him that I have some fictitious boyfriend because he will heed me saying that there's a man present instead of just heeding my personal no. And I don't have to give you a reason for that no. So I've had to unlearn all of that. The biggest thing for me was understanding, unlearning what society has placed on us in terms of our gender and roles. The whole idea that my value is only tied to the fact that I could be successful, but if, you know, you're not married, then you're not successful. Or this idea that 
somehow we are property and that our minds, especially as black women, that it's not valued and we should be seen and not heard. And that was a process that I had to go through because I did get married and I felt like, again, I gave consent to someone else being in my life and not honoring who I was as an individual. And so it was no longer about what everybody else thought. It wasn't about, are people going to judge me because I'm admitting to this marriage having failed to individuals who have a child together. But it was about, I need to be able to live. I need to be free. I need to give my own personal self the consent to say that it's okay and that we can rebuild and we can create a life as a single parent and continue to have a career and learn for every mistake that was made. And so the unlearn was learning to give myself that space, to give myself the opportunity to be okay with the decisions that I was going to make and not worry about anyone else. And I think that, again, our consent is always tied to what others think, our fear that we'll be rejected. And at the end of the day, when if people love you, if people honor who you are, then consent should never be that issue. And that's something you definitely have to learn. So you found power in permission. Yes, there's definitely power in permission. And I know that this conversation will transition into the work that we both do. But then it goes back to my ideals and beliefs of what then becomes your convictions, right? And your convictions is what will drive who and how you give consent to anyone. I'm Frenchie Davis. You're listening to The Consent Convo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart, and smart is so sexy. I'm Nadia Lopez. You're listening to The Consent Combo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart, and smart is definitely sexy. Clearly, we all need much more of the C word, consent, and the F word. Uh Uh-uh, not that one, this one. Hey, y'all, the OJ 
That was part one of the Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent throughout November in partnership with Essence. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Frenchie Davis and Dr. Nadia Lopez. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes. Talk about it, 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 talk about it
Part two of the Consent Convo on the spin. We are now living in consent in the age of Donald Trump, America's soon-to-be 45th president of the United States. You are both two Black women educators. Sex education has been much more about the anatomy than emotionality or even physicality. What parts of the body go where? And there has been a serious politics of fear and shame finger-wagging consequences, the you-will-get-pregnant warnings that also are directed at girls in particular, very little about friendship or love or pleasure or indeed consent. Has that changed? And what might consent-positive sex education look like? What issues do you see as educators that inspire or concern you? Dr. Nadia Lopez, you're the principal of a middle school in Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York, Mott Hale Bridges Academy. And when it comes to educational spaces, this government launched a new initiative to address and prevent sexual assault in K-12 schools. And K-12 students are 12 to 19 years old. Now, there's an online interactive tool called A Safe Place to Learn. And it has information for schools. And it's also putting out guidance for districts to consider when developing a sexual misconduct policy. So here's Catherine Liamon. She's the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Education on Sexual Violence and the increasing numbers in high school, but especially in middle school. I think it's important to recognize that sexual violence does not begin in college. To our significant dismay, we see very, very serious noncompliance with respect to sexual violence in our K-12 spaces, and in particular in our middle and high schools. We have seen in the last two fiscal years, we've seen a 470% increase in the complaints that have come to us related to sexual violence. Catherine Diamond there. Frenchie Davis, your work focuses on human sexuality, sexual agency, and how that impacts spirituality, diversity. And you lead and facilitate workshops in spaces, including Washington, D.C. schools. So what does consent in the context of the organizations you both work with and the students you encounter look like? Let's talk about consent as educators and from the perspective of the educational spaces within which you both work. Dr. Nadia Lopez, let me start with you. Consent starts actually, ironically enough, with play. Because as a principal and as an educator in middle school, I've watched how my scholars interact over the years. And you notice how girls allow boys to be aggressive and boys allow girls to be aggressive and touch them in ways that would be deemed inappropriate. And that's oftentimes learned from the community that they live in. It's oftentimes accepted in the society that they live in. And so what we've found is literally in our handbook having to write what that looks like in terms of playing with each other and then having the conversations, whether it's in our champion program, which every adult is in charge of being an advisor to 10 kids in our building, our character ed program, as well as our gender-specific forums that we host in which we have conversations about the boundaries that our young women set 
and the boundaries that our young men set. Because oftentimes we blame the boys for touching girls that's inappropriate or saying things that's inappropriate. But a lot of our girls are actually becoming more and more aggressive and doing things that would not be deemed appropriate. But in sitting down, I often have focus groups with our kids to talk about where are these behaviors coming from, why do they allow those things to happen. And for some girls, it's like, you know, I like this boy and I want him to like me back. Or, you know, this is what we do at home and our parents let us do it and they've done it growing up as kids. And so oftentimes it's not even just about teaching the children, it's about teaching the parents and explaining to them how this will have a major impact on their futures because our kids do what they see adults allow them to do or have said, given actual consent to doing. In terms of in our classrooms, it's conversations that it doesn't become a hard conversation because we literally have these conversations embedded, whether it's in social studies, whether it's in science, even in conversations that have to do with math or the English classes in which we're looking at various characters and looking at their development. It's ongoing because in Brownsville, unfortunately, you have children becoming parents at the age of 11. And I've had a scholar who, when she graduated, before she graduated, she had a child. And she had a child at the age of 13 because her mom had her when she was 11. And so it became, even though we've provided her with a lot of advice, we've given her all of the classes, once they leave us, they're still going into an environment that says, you can still give this consent because the parent has experienced something in their household that said that having a child at this early age or perhaps being violated, someone didn't deal with that and what the consequences would be. So it's not always easy. It's a much-needed dialogue. It's something that sometimes we don't want to have conversations in our communities because we feel like sex should not be a conversation. And when we only talk about sex, we only talk about sexually transmitted diseases, but we don't talk about the feeling behind it and why our kids are saying it's okay to engage in these behaviors and they're actually looking for the emotional stimulation that they're not getting in their household. Frenchie Davis? The problem is, as a sex educator and someone sees my face, I am not a full-figured white woman because those people who teach sex education, that's okay. This black woman comes in and has a certain appearance, they're like, oh, they're not going to teach my child. Straight from the get, you're cut off. And the problem is, when I say I'm a sexologist, the first thing everyone goes to are the behaviors of sex. I deal with sexual behavior and sexuality. That is who you are. Sex is what you do. So one, we don't even know about sex education because we've already made this strange type of association that teaching about sex is teaching people to have sex. That is the first problem. And then when, particularly around communities of color, minority communities, impoverished communities, the first thing we talk about is pregnancy prevention. So taking away consent, these people here are not worthy to have children. Mm -hmm. When you say prevention, we want to prevent all of you from making anything else that looks like you. And that is a sad state of affairs. And when you try and prevent people from doing something and you repress a natural behavior, you get deviant behaviors. You get children having babies at this very premature age 
because we didn't deal with their skin hunger. That skin hunger says, you know what, my parents have not hugged me, my mother or father have not hugged me or given me a kiss in two weeks or three weeks or ever. And that body needs that touch, and that body, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, says, I have to have this touch or I'm going to crack. I, I need to be nurtured so much. If this young boy is willing to engage me in touch, and it is just the touch that my skin, that my body is yearning for as a natural need, that's when we get into these young people having babies at a premature place. I do childhood prolonging. I don't do childhood prevention, particularly in communities of color. It's about dealing with the mental health issue as well like we can't negate dealing with supporting our kids around mental health so that emotional stimulation that kids are yearning for that's what turns into this quote-unquote idea of sex and we need to have the sex education and that's why for us it's like having family conversations where every adult in the building has conversations with our scholars because they don't even know how to have conversations at home with their parents about what they consider right or wrong or what it feels like to have someone violate them in a way where, was that consensual? Like, unless you actually watch kids and see how just the slightest, the t- like for us as adults, if, especially if you've been abused in any way, there's that touch that becomes inappropriate and the girl never says, she doesn't say no and she she never says no because she thinks that it's okay, and if she says no, that the boy won't like her, and then everyone's going to ridicule her. And so because I make it very clear to my staff that we have to always empower our children and give them voice, it is okay to say no. You need to know that that's not correct, and we need to have a conversation about why you thought that was correct, whether it's the boy or the girl. And I usually bring them together because I want them to understand that this behavior is not acceptable, but what's at the core that you need that you're not getting that even made you think that that was okay? And then from there we bring the parents in because there are some parents who think that it's all right for children to interact like that. And then there's some parents who w- would tell the child, I taught you better. Why are you doing this? And it's a conversation where some kids are like, but you're never home. So you don't know what's going on with me. You never ask me what's going on with me. Or there's the craving for attention. You know, some kids want us to call their parents because they want their parents to come into the building because it will be the only time that the parent even shows any interest. So it's a bigger dynamic than just the sexual education. It's about really getting down to the mental health and what the needs are of the kids and what they're expressing on the outside that's saying, I'm not being supported mentally and physically or emotionally on the inside. What you're both saying is powerful because when you break down the word consent, what it means that its root cause divided into two words, one is con and one is sent. What it actually means is feel together. So you're really talking about an emotional education, one that allows us to get better in contact with our own emotional range, our own emotional panorama, and recognize what we're hungering for, as opposed to what has happened Sex education has really been a whole series of politics of fear and shame. And as you say, frankly, the idea of pregnancy prevention and what those messages reveal and what you say, Nadia, not understanding that the touch could be about so many other things. And if children are not given voice, then you're not in a position to establish 
or identify or unpack what that really is. So you're really talking about completely reimagining and exploring an emotional education of which sex is part. But emotionality is really the foundation because that can actually allow us to unpack and then deal with a whole range of other things. So then as we close, what particular thing have you as educators have had to unlearn in training and dealing with the learners and scholars and students that you deal with in order to be more impactful on this issue of consent as we close, starting with you, Dr. Nadia Lopez. I'll tell you what I've had to teach my staff to unlearn, and that is not to come in with their own biases. And there are a lot of educators who come into spaces and interact with children, and their intention is to educate and empower kids, but without really understanding the dynamics of the community that they're serving. And a lot of judgment is passed about why our children behave the way they do, why their circumstances are the way they are, and what in terms is that consent and how they should have learned that at home. After my team has been with me for X amount of years, they've developed an understanding that lack of education on so many levels has led to people giving away consent on so many levels. So whether it's the consent of those who move into their community and them not having a voice of being able to advocate for themselves, the consent of getting into relationships that are not the most healthiest, and but they believe that those unhealthy relationships are the definition of love. They've had to unlearn that everybody doesn't have the choices that they've been able or well, privileged to have. And so it's been hard work doing that because those biases, regardless of what, when you're dealing with children, children are aware of what you, how you care for them and how you speak to them and what your expectations are. And by doing that, we've been able to establish a school community where children know that every single person who's here is for them, and they trust that if they're not, then Ms. Lopez is going to help them transition out of this space. But I know that those adults who touch the lives of our children, they have a lot of power, and it's important for them to know that don't come in here looking at statistics and looking at what the media says about this community. Understand the dynamics, and therefore, once you do that, then you can then move forward and help to heal and bridge the gaps. Frenchie Davis, closing thought to you. I would just add that, especially when it comes to human sexuality and education, that enough of us sexologists are not being taken advantage of. You don't go to your dentist for a gynecology visit. And so sometimes we're asking teachers to teach something that they're not trained in. We're asking parents to teach something that they're not trained in. And that's what I'm here for. Your preachers are not trained in human sexuality. So we need to go to the right individuals for that information. A lot of times we get information about teenage pregnancy, you know, uh, teenage pregnancies in Latino and black communities are high. And at the same time, they never discuss the fact that minority girls and young girls in poverty mature biologically and begin puberty two to four years earlier than white girls. Well, that means that the behaviors are not different between black girls and white girls, but it does mean that because they are in puberty and they are in their childbearing years at 11, that we need to be mindful that our numbers are going to be higher because we go into puberty earlier. 
So that changes the dynamic of that statistic without a story or understanding behind it. And a lot of times we don't get that story. And right now, as a community, you know, we're in high emotional crises and our emotional intelligence is low. So we're going to have to boost our emotional intelligence to minimize our emotional crises. Because this is not about sexually transmitted diseases. It's about emotionally transmitted diseases. And we really have to address that today and now. Otherwise, we're always going to have the continued consequences because we're not dealing with the emotional deprivation of our community. So powerful, so powerful. What you said there, Frenchie Davis, is everything. Emotionally transmitted diseases, everything. And everything is everything. You know who said that? The one and only Miss Hill. I wrote these words, I wrote these words for everyone who struggles in their youth. Who won't accept deception in instead of what is true. It seems we lose the game before we even start to play. Who made these rules? We're so confused. We're so easily led astray. Let me tell you that everything is everything. Everything is everything. Everything is everything. Possibly speak tongue, beat drums, Abyssinian Street Baptist, rap this and fine linen from the beginning. My practice extending across the atlas. I begat this, flipping it together on the dirty mattress. You can't match this, rapper slash actress. More powerful than two Cleopatra's. Bomb graffiti on the tomb of Nefertiti. MCs ain't ready to take it to the Serengeti. My rhymes is heavy, like the mind of Sister Betty. El Boogie spars with stars and constellations. Then came down for a little conversation. Adjacent to the king. Fear no human being Roll with cherubims to Nassau Coliseum Now hear this mixture Where hip-hop meets scripture Develop a negative into a positive picture Now everything is everything Sometimes it seems, sometimes it seems, we'll touch that dream, we'll touch that dream, slow and not at all, they come slow and not at and the ones on top, won't make it stop, so convinced that they might fall, let's love ourselves and we can't fail, to make a better situation, Everything is everything. Everything is everything. 
all about consent. That thing you do. Girls, you know you better. Watch out. Some guys, some guys are only about that thing, that thing, that thing, that thing, that thing, that your hour. Thank you to Frenchie Davis and Dr. Nadia Lopez. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. I want to hear myself. 
Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is The Consent Convo, a global public conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Essence. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes. It's under The Spin One. And check out Essence, The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Economically, pursuits of freedom, equality, invest your money properly. People owe me apology, intellectual property, stealing, stolen commodity, souls controlling, robbery, soul, lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me, mind on the hairs, follow me, honestly, honestly, all these jokers, economy, puppets with no autonomy, yuppies, food, you can I see you looking, but you better take it easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. Too much ex-mommy, take it easy Good with the sex, you be like, take it easy Mommy, take it easy, take it easy You better take it easy You moving bricks, but you better take it easy Here's a tip you too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't last seat. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture cleft, get in the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity in the I flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. Yeah, the ghetto my stroll with a nat turn of flow. Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show. I see you looking, but you better take it easy. So you go. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. Good with the sex. You be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. You know originals get plagiarized Majors, minors, my supervisors Haters, climbers get scrutinized Placators, blinded, stupid guys Wicked people choose homicide Dregs of society Heathen, the beggars, bogus Misleading, the nigger, negro, no reading them Angelitos, Colibra, them Chico, Chica's completing them Addiction, fiction, bleeding them Capitalism, beating them Misunderstanding, cheating them The ignorance, defeating them Loyalty is leaving them Got royalty, believing them Eyes open, deceiving them Reconciling, receiving them Reckless driving them We leaving them Matthew, Andrew, and Peter We about to reconcile Wreck and wreck and wreck and we about to reconcile, bitch. We about to reconcile. We about to reconcile. Reconcile it. Come again. Reconcile. Reconcile. Reconciliation. We about to reconcile. Tell them shit get off my style. We about to reconcile. Reconciliation again. We about to reconcile. Women with the men again. Stop the trap. Which I thought I wasn't coming. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. NPR Distribution and the Public Radio Satellite System.